Welcome to this edition of The Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld. If you're about to pull the trigger on a newer used vehicle, this is the show for you. From shortages to staggering cost increases, consumers are taking heat on all sides. What's legal? What's shady? How do you navigate this market? For answers, I'm joined by Georgini, Executive Director of the Automobile Protection Association, the APA. Welcome back to The Driving Podcast, George. Oh, it's nice to be back, Lorraine. George, I'm hearing from readers that contracts they signed a year ago when they ordered a car or even more aren't being honored or changes are being introduced when they show up to get their vehicle. First, can you explain the difference between a contract and a purchase agreement? Some people believe they've signed a contract when, in fact, they haven't, and sometimes it's the other way around. So can you just make that distinction? Lorraine, really, a purchase agreement is a contract. The trick is that it's a contract full of loopholes drafted by the vendor. That's really the issue right now. And so they're actually signing an agreement that is kind of porous. And in regular times, if you decide to go sideways, they have handcuffs on you. But in these times where there aren't enough vehicles, if you decide to go sideways and because they're changing the terms on you, and you don't care, and they, they don't care because they'll sell the vehicle to someone else for more money. But that's really where the problem arises. It's that um, the uh, industry is two-faced when it comes to signing the deal. Is some there... dealers now are, are more, I'm sorry, some dealers now are, are, are more transparent. What they're saying is that you're actually placing an order, uh, and that's all it is. You're reserving a place in line. Um, but even then, they often won't tell you what the full downside risk is. In other words, not only could the price go up, but we're going to reevaluate your trade and we're going to increase the interest rate on your loan. And so the difference in some cases can be, you know, typically it's two to $3,000, sometimes a bit less, but we've seen cases where it's been as much as $8,000. As long as there's a shortage of vehicles, the dealers are willing to let the customer off the hook because then they put the vehicle up for sale from inventory. It's not an order anymore. So they charge you, they'll charge the eventual buyer another premium, even higher than you for expedited delivery. So if you believe you have a signed sales contract, which we all know you can't get out of, um, a lot of times people don't have what they think they have. They have these agreements they're clutching and it's all working in the dealer's favor if they can squirrel out of that one as well. Yes. Now, for years when you signed a deal, um, it, the, what would happen is that the both the financing and the price were locked in. As long as it was placed with the manufacturer, typically orders in those cases, you're either buying from inventory, often the vehicle was in transit. Even if it was being um, built, it was maybe 90 days out. And so the industry had developed ways to uh, help uh, the customer buy with security. The contracts were still full of loopholes. They were awful documents in many provinces. But... Um, the manufacturer was holding the line and the dealer didn't have a reason because there was too much, too many vehicles. They were very happy just to have you take delivery. That's all changed now. So with these extra long delivery times, it is possible that the manufacturer will have a price increase or two or three between when you order and when the vehicle comes in, particularly if there's a model year changeover. And it is possible that the financing or the leasing conditions won't be as good as they were at the time when you sold. So, and once again, if the price has changed, often the deal on the financing doesn't apply anymore. So up to there, we could argue at least that it's kind of a, 
unavoidable or external to the relationship between the car dealer and the customer because that's the car the car dealers really doesn't have control over that but if a vehicle comes in and you discover there's mandatory vehicle etching you have to take the dealer's financing or the price is $1500 higher there's a uh a charge of $725 for a winter package that we learned uh, was actually floor mats and a case for your glasses, for your sunglasses. <laughs> um, those kind of things are just dealer greed. And it's really unacceptable. And unfortunately, it's tolerated in every province except one. And even in that province, which is Quebec, the dealers are doing it anyway, because it's still more profitable to take your chances. Uh, on an enforcement act action than to actually have honest pricing. I should add, it's not every dealer, but it's a significant percentage of the dealerships. Okay, Lee, I'm going to go from that point because, correct me if I'm wrong, but after three years of hearing about shortages that have taken control out of their hands, I think that story is getting a little old now. Uh, stock's coming back, but the average cost of a new car in Canada – Auto Trader said, I think last week, um, $67,800, a 20% bump over the last quarter. Are they just getting too comfortable making the margins on the more expensive vehicles? Uh, the dealers are doing very, very well. Uh, dealerships themselves are trading for record multiples, like over what, the, you know, it's a great time to be selling your dealership. And that's even despite the fact that interest rates are zoomed up so that the cost to the person buying, if they have to borrow, is quite a bit higher uh, because of the financing uh, charges. But uh, it's just a great time. The, the shortage has meant that dealers have power over their pricing that they haven't had in probably more than 20 years, maybe 25 years. And I think most of them would like it that way. It's an easier way to make a living. It's not necessarily a bad thing not to have overabundance of vehicles. In other words, to have the supply match the demand. Right now, we're undersupplied. But um, unfortunately, it's opened the door to a lot of greed and a lot of abuse that shouldn't be there. I just, when I read that there's, you know, still shortages on, you know, various parts and manufacturers are choosing or electing to put those into their most expensive models. And I understood that in the beginning of the shortages. Now I feel like it's a cop-out. And... They're purposely, when I look at these average vehicle costs, Canadians can't shoulder that. That's like insanity. And well, I think the problem is on two sides, Lorraine. You know, we saw at the very beginning of the pandemic, before there were shortages, that the customers were already supersizing or already buying uh, fancier vehicles. I You're think psychic. That's my, that's my next question to you. I love it. <laughs> oh, well. It, it, How it, much it, of this? I can't quite believe it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I... I can look at the consumer end of the industry across decades. And um, the behaviors that we're seeing now, I mean, people answer that they're interested in green, that they're preoccupied by the environment, that they're concerned about inflation. And yet the behaviors, when it's time, when the you know, rubber meets the road, when you're about to make your purchase, are anything but that. People are buying larger vehicles than the one they're driving today. That's part of the reason why the prices have climbed so much. It's not just because vehicles are way more expensive. It's also because people are upsizing. They're moving out of a compact car into what's called a compact SUV. But, you know, a Chevrolet Equinox or a Toyota RAV4 is not compact. It's, it's a midsize, relatively heavy vehicle. And that's become the new normal. 
there were other times when, you know, I, I can think of the early 1980s when people were concerned about the, you know, uh, dependence on imported oil. That was after the second energy crisis in 1979. People were coming out of a, a V8 American vehicle with like a velour interior and moving into a four-cylinder import vehicle that was would kind of beat you up. They were noisy. They were buzzy. Uh, often you were switching from an automatic to a manual transmission, which you hadn't driven in 20 years. And people seemed to do it. Even as late as 2008, when the economy collapsed uh, because of the U.S. Uh, real estate bubble, from 2008 to 2011, you know, the cars that were selling were like the Ford Focus. Compact cars were like doing gangbusters for three years. And then people went back to, to buying trucks. It's so bad now that the car makers who, you know, we're not shy to, to I would say, blame when they when they deserve it. But they have pulled off some really nice small cars off the market because they just wouldn't sell. The last small, nice vehicle, a good vehicle is the Hyundai Venue. The Kia, um, the Forte's gone. Uh, the Hyundai Accent's gone. The smallest Toyotas, which were tough little cars, the Yaris and similar cars are gone. The manufacturers just couldn't make a case for selling them. The only markets left for those vehicles were Eastern Canada, so Quebec and Atlantic Canada, and that's not enough to support a small vehicle um, in North America. I often wonder, it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing because manufacturers make more money on bigger vehicles. They do ads that tell us why we need these vehicles. You're you're the person that's taught me the most probably over the past 15 years or so that vehicle purchases are highly emotional. You've told yes. me people walk into a showroom with one idea and walk out with a totally different car than what they went in to buy. So I, I understand that. So did manufacturers and their advertising budgets create this demand? And then there's, you know, or is it people demanding that they want bigger cars? And again, I know it's chicken and egg if that's what you're seeing everywhere. And I think, too, once you see a crossover, if the person beside you is driving a ginormous pickup truck, you think yours looks reasonable. But That's if you put, right. that be, so, you put that beside my little, I call it a warm hatch because it's not a hot hatch. <laughs> it, it looks like an ant compared to some of these. Yeah, but if you're driving a hot hatch anyway, you're in the minority today, a warm hatch, because uh, the hatchback compact car is like an endangered species. It's the next thing to go. I hope it, we keep it because it's a very uh, versatile vehicle that is also easy on resources. Um, it really uh, is. And so to get back to your chicken and egg, yes. The advertising creates the idea that if you have something big, uh, you can drive over, you know, tornadoes and earthquakes and secure because it has all wheel drive and it looks like a truck. But there is enough countervailing information that's not advertising. It's called the news on climate change, on resources, on growing population and growing vehicle sizes, on the fact that it's more dangerous in the case of an impact with a pedestrian to have a, a vehicle with a tall kind of bluff front end than a vehicle with like a hood that plunges. And all of this stuff is findable. And yet um, we are uh, still looking for larger vehicles. And it's the most evident in the case of electric vehicles. Since the car makers we know are limited by the number of EVs they can make, the rebates are actually not increasing the number of EVs on the road anymore. It's cheaper to buy a luxury large EV. The car makers realize that, hey, you know, we can only make so many, so we'll make more money by making a $55,000 EV instead of a $40,000 one. So Bolt is gone. 
the leaf is gone, or anything that's coming out is much larger, but the public has also used the rebate to upsize. That's the vehicles that are selling. And so EVs are, you know, uh, eventually, of course, we're going to realize that the idea of having a vehicle that's a couple of thousand pounds heavier than the vehicle it's replacing because A, it's larger, and B, the batteries are heavier, probably has a lot of negative consequences. Certainly in collisions with other vehicles, it will be uh, it will create more damage. And deadly for vulnerable road users. I am terrified of what's coming. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing that we've known we've known in the era of gas vehicles is that high performance actually does increase collision involvement. So it, the reason to a certain degree why, let's say, vehicles like BMWs might be a little more involved in collisions than other vehicles isn't only because jerks are driving them, and I'm not saying every <laughs> owner is, but that a, a sporty vehicle does attract a more aggressive driver uh, at times, but it's also because speed actually is sort of um, addictive. And you will be driving faster in a vehicle that has a certain ease and that rewards you by being pleasurable to drive quickly. And that's every EV, pretty much. So I, I suspect that all the new, the most of the other than, you know, the Leaf and the very early models, the Mitsubishis, the small ones, but most of the EVs now, the level of performance, even in an average EV is, is scintillating. It's amazing. And so my guess is that we will see um, unintended consequences of that. And all of that relates again to your original comment about upsizing. So um, yes, it's partly the car makers with EVs, but I would say it's also the government because the rebates uh, were set, they're so generous uh, and the, the trigger point is fairly high up the range at around $55,000, $60,000 that it has allowed the car maker to offer a larger, more equipped vehicle that the customer wants. And can, they can leave out the door, you know, in BC or Quebec, they're getting essentially eleven, twelve, thirteen thousand dollars off. You touched on driver behavior, and for years and years and years, I drove a different vehicle every week because that was part of my job. And I realized very early on, if I was in a massive pickup truck or a great big Lincoln or something, you absolutely feel different behind the wheel than you do behind my little hatchback. And you brought up sports cars or very fast cars, you do change the driver behavior. And me of all people should, you know, I've given it back in a week. What do I care? It does alter the behavior behind the wheel and it does make people more aggressive. And I think we need to talk more about that because I don't think it's necessarily that horrible people buy great big vehicles and then bully, you know, bully you on the highway. I think normal people get into them and kind of ramp up their engagement. Like they, it gives you a different kind of feeling. And I think we haven't talked about that. And I think it's going to play out on our roads safety-wise, especially to your point, when they're electrified, they weigh so much more. And, oh, and, the, and the response podcast. is so much better. Sorry, the response is so much yeah. better. Like you yeah. just step on the tap pedal it. and the thing. Yeah, tap it. A Tesla yeah. 3, like that's exhilarating. You know, yeah. Forget that it's electric. It's like an insane sports car, even without, <laughs> even if you ignore the technology that's in it just for that price to get a car that with that level of performance is, is quite exceptional. Okay. I'm going to circle back a little bit to um, people going into a showroom, what to expect. There have been changes. Some people haven't been looking to buy a car for a year or two. What are some examples? What do you think are some fair price increases from dealers? What are things that are, if a dealer says to you, I'm sorry, but we now have to charge you this because you know the price has gone up you mentioned model years what are things that are justified what are things that are not 
um, you know, something to throw a flag on the play. Well, except for Quebec, uh, where the manufacturer increased the retail price between purchase and delivery, and the dealer is passing it along. So that's it. That's, okay. legit. that's legit. That's absolutely okay. legit. Uh, okay. In another situation, the manufacturer has dropped the, um, the, you know, has discontinued the attractive financing offer that you had at the time you signed, or the, the lease payments have changed. Um, I think that's again, you, you, the dealer is um, passing along an increase over which they didn't have control. I say except Quebec because Quebec's version is different. They said all of this was foreseeable. It's called a business loss. It's a risk you take. You sign the deal. You got to honor the deal. And it's not that's not so dumb. It's but it is. It's a different kind of mindset around um, the bargain and the I would say the relationship between buyer and seller. Well, we can't have predictability now, can we, George? Um, <laughs> well, this is a form. What I'm talking about is still a form of predictability. And the, the argument is the dealer didn't have agency over the manufacturer's price increases. Yeah. Uh, and transport is another thing that's been going up, but typically not by large amounts. But it's been inching up $100, $200 every year. It's fake, by the way. There's recently uh, class actions that were filed in Quebec arguing that the transportation charge is just a phony charge, which it is. It's not the real cost of transporting the vehicle. And what the firms that filed did is they priced shipping your own car individually from a plant in Ontario to any location in the province of Quebec. And it they was, put like eight of them on a truck. No, one of them even on a truck is still thousands, a thousand dollars or more <laughs> cheaper than what the manufacturer who's putting eight on a truck to one location is paying. So their conclusion is it's not really a transportation charge. It's some kind of padded charge. All right. So an increase from the manufacturer to the dealer, that's fair. You touched earlier on winter outfits or, you know, kidding your winter uh, winter kits and things like that. We've talked, I know, previously about forced financing, about other things. Let me Let's talk a little bit about um, those mandatory things that you show up and are forced to take. You mentioned etching which you can describe that for people. Um, sometimes they've already put rust proofing on cars. What are some of the things that the APA is seeing that dealers are going, take it or leave it. We've already put this stuff on the car. You touched on it earlier, but what are some of the other things? Uh, charges for related to like a green tire charge. So the real tire charge is about four bucks a tire in your province. And that's to help with tire recycling, but they'll manage to charge you $199 and bundle it. It's hidden in with like a tire warranty or um, nitrogen in your tires, which, by the way, most dealers never do. They just put a green valve cap on. They might put a little bit of nitrogen in, but they don't actually empty all the air from the tire, purge it, and then refill it with nitrogen because it just would take too much time. I would add, by the way, that normal air is 80% nitrogen already. So it's just a stupid thing to pay money for, really, unless you're racing. Um a winter tire package. So in some cases, it actually includes tires that the dealer has got like a discount on because they made a bulk order. In other cases, it's just a winter package that could include almost anything. And as I said, the the most egregious case was 725 bucks for floor mat. And, well, a sunglass holder. and four <laughs> floor mats that normally are called floor mats and sell yeah. 250. Yeah, but hey, it's pretty special holder for the sunglasses, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, admin documentation, other charges for paperwork that were not included in your original deal. Yeah, first of all, they're fake. That's another fake charge because it doesn't cost $500 to fill out the paperwork. But um, if it was added after the fact, that, that's just gravy for the dealer. So people should be wary of this and ask questions and get some of this struck. And I, I, I what people are saying is they're being told, take it or leave it. I think um, we're kind of past the worst part, part of that, which was two years ago, I'm going to say. But when you look at these contracts, people send me copies of their contracts and I'm aghast. It's like, this is outrageous. It's such random numbers they've made up a thousand dollars for this and six ninety nine for this and doc fees, DOC. That's smart because when they first came in, doc, this is over 20 years ago, it was very timid. The dealers trying doc fees knew that it was crooked and they never wrote down doc they would tell you verbally it's for documentation but actually what they wrote on the agreement was d period o period c period so in case they were charged by a regulator it started in bc they would say that's a dealer overhead charge properly disclosed and so um the um regulators never did anything about it and at that time that charge was 99 dollars, or in the worst case it was 149 bucks then when they realized, hey, wait a minute, nobody's challenging us, it went up to $299. And of course, now you know it's they cluster between four and six hundred dollars. Occasionally it's even higher. And it's lost the name. It, the DOC is become sometimes now documentation, even on the contract. So the dealers essentially legitimized something that they knew was crooked to start with. Admin was the same. It was ADM originally, A period, D period, M period. That was additional dealer markup. <laughs> and people think it's admin. Well, now even salespeople think it's admin because it's always been the case. But the first people to introduce this understood that they were bending the rules pretty badly. And they thought, we'll wait and see. Additional and dealer markup. Yeah, so initially they, that allowed them to advertise the same price as an honest dealer. In those days, most dealers had a real all-in pricing, but they could make an extra one forty-nine per car. And, you know, it was kind of a little extra gravy. The salesman was sometimes commissioned on it, sometimes not. So uh, they were in on it too. And then, progressively, as the regulators got less and less invested in the market, I, I find it sad. They never clamp down. And then suddenly now every dealer pretends that that's the real cost of paperwork. But in fact, if it were their real cost, how is it that everybody's real cost always ends in 9.5 or 9.9? I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld here today with Giorgini. We'll be right back after this break with more on The Driving Podcast. Welcome back to The Driving Podcast. I'm your host, Lorraine Sommerfeld, and I'm joined today by Georgini, Executive Director of the APA. We've talked about the good, the bad, and the questionable behavior that dealers are exhibiting. What can consumers do? What are tips before they walk in the showroom? And do, do consumers ever make their own bed badly? Do they ever screw up? And is there something they can prevent themselves from doing? What does the APA warn people about? Well, um, one thing you could do is keep a copy of the ad for the vehicle that you're looking at. And when you go in, at least you have an anchor. So that will help you because the seller will tend to then uh, price against your ad. And they will consider also that that's probably the vehicle you want. 
as opposed to steering you towards something else. Another thing that that is, I think, helpful is to visit the manufacturer's website and run some numbers yourself. Some of the sites are super user-friendly. You can build a car and you get a pretty good idea of what the payments would look like if you purchase for a longer time. Uh, they often won't tell you what the total interest component is if you're financing. They'll tell you the interest rate. They'll tell you the payment. But you could do that yourself if you added up all those payments and you'll see, hey, wait a minute. This vehicle that is, you know, $42,000 with the financing, I'm going to be uh, over eight years or even nine years, I'm going to be spending $55,000 or $52,000. So that would be a good a good exercise just so that you have an idea for when you go in so your head isn't swimming with numbers. Um, I know that there's a, a push today to doing a buying online, but unfortunately, I, I mean shopping online, I won't say actual buying, but what we have found is that uh, dealers are remarkably unreliable online. They always have what you're looking for or claim to be able to get it. And the information you'll get on pricing is very basic and then it'll be come on down. So you can only go so far with that. It's not like you can get a transparent transaction online everywhere. There are some dealers that are trying to do it right with, you know, um, to a web buyer, but most of them don't. They consider it as an old school lead generator. It's no different than someone outside a restaurant holding a menu and trying to get you to come in. I want to switch gears a little bit here. Um, a lot of people usually take solace in the used car market when prices on new cars go, you know, when they escalate so high. We've seen some really hard prices on used cars. They've softened a little, but they haven't softened um, as much as people would. The gap is just not there between new and used yet. Combined with people buying out their leases, which means that stock is not coming back onto the into inventory, I've been reading that the U.S. is still taking a lot of our used cars. Is this still going on? Are we losing a lot of that inventory to the U.S.? Yes, Canada is losing a significant number of three-year-old and newer vehicles to the States. It's especially the more expensive vehicles, the better equipped vehicles are going but even now, uh, moderate vehicles that before didn't used to leave. Uh, they ha the American buyers have a, an advantage in terms of a stronger currency when they're shopping here. Their market is as short as ours of vehicles, and it's 10 times the size. So it's voracious. They can just vacuum up our, mo our best uh, recent used vehicles. There have been times in the last two years where the wholesale price on a used pickup truck is higher than the retail price. I mean, that's a theoretical impossibility. So in other words, the truck that you have, uh, sorry, a pickup truck that, that you can find at a Canadian dealership, let's say used for $55,000, is $58,000 at an auction going into the US. So that kind of situation explains that it's because of the presence of the US buyer. So that's why we're, when we go to buy used vehicles, the prices are still so strong. And the choices aren't what we imagined them to be because we're losing them to a whole nother market. That's right. And so, as you said, uh, prices have come down, but it isn't really because of the availability. What happened is the interest rates on a used vehicle went from, you know, you could get something financed at 5%. Now, typically, you're between 8 and 9.5%. Nine and, and so, it's the interest component that was like a punch in the solar plexus for the used car buyer. And that makes that extra long financing, the seven-year loan, which was had become typical for these three-year-old vehicles, 
it makes it very expensive. It can be more expensive or similar with interest to buying a new vehicle if you're in, in the cheaper end of the market. And that is why, in fact, um, prices came down a bit. We uh, figure that even when new vehicle uh, supply improves, I mean, it's improving now slowly, but let's say we get to a good match between buyer and seller by 2025. Um, the used car market, because it it's sort of like a slinky, it ripples down for several years. We think the shortage is going to be a feature for the next several years. And for that reason, uh, prices on used will be much higher than they were historically before the pandemic for, for probably a decade. Well, that was the next question I was going to ask you. And again, psychic George, and he already answered it. So not a lot of reprieve coming in the used car market anytime soon. I believe that there will be a more supply, uh, but the prices, it will take a while for prices to um, begin to go down. And hopefully the first vehicles that will go down in price will be those relatively recent ones, the three-year-old vehicles, as, a, as the supply of them. When people start turning in their leases again, the supply will, will, will start to increase, but it will, it will be a gradual process. We've been speaking about uh, price protections when you're buying a vehicle. I just want to move a little bit over to after you already own it. We're seeing a lot of new tech. I think a lot of it is hitting the road before it's ready. I'm seeing more recalls than I've ever seen in my life. And I know why, because I think the tech's not ready. Is there is there an uptick, an uptick in the problems with what we've already got and what should we be doing? We, you can go into Quebec on this one now if you want to, and OMVIC as well, they have a role here. But after the fact, what kinds of protections should consumers be anticipating if they have a problem? So after the fact is two things. Immediately after the fact is you get home and you realize there's something wrong with the deal you got. It's not what you were told. Ideally, you realize it before the fact. It's not always easy. I would suggest you you get involved with the regulator. OMVIC, as an example, uh, is a dealer regulator in Ontario. So that's the Ontario Motor Vehicle Industry Council. They've recently overhauled their board to make it a little bit um, less, uh, uh, quite a bit less actually, dealer heavy. And the idea of these of this industry council is that they are um, an authority. They're a delegated authority from the government a bit like a professional body that would regulate the bar, for example, for lawyers or doctors. Um, and the thinking was that they have a mandate to protect the customer, to educate the customer, but also to um, educate and police the dealers. The thinking was that maybe we'll let business take care of business. Uh, it's been a mixed bag. And I think the government's aware of it. And OMBIC itself has had very substantial changes internally. Um, and our hope is that going forward, that they will be able to, you know, improve standards around, you know, price, for example, pricing integrity and advertising and stuff. Uh, compared to other provinces, it's a much bigger body, much better funded. Um, it looks after, uh, a, you know, the largest cohort of car dealers and uh, in, in, the, in the country and is way more active on enforcement uh, than most of the other provinces. So, you know, looking last year, I think over 2000 charges laid, but one of the problems, and this is the same as in the other provinces that typically it's dealers are fined when they're over the line. 
and the fines are just not enough to prevent the activity. What you would need to do is suspend them. We found that during COVID, that if dealers had an outbreak of COVID, the public health authorities closed them down for a couple of weeks. Everybody had to be tested before coming back. And we got a very high level of compliance from dealers with uh, distancing, masks, sanitizer, um, solo road tests. Dealers were actually very, very responsive to the public health element. And yet during the same period, uh, they were completely going sideways on dealer advertising, uh, pricing integrity, um, uh, retailing practices. And what we understood finally is that what scared them more was having someone put a padlock on the door for a couple of weeks. So they can do it. They just choose which things they will do. <laughs> and because the dealers in an in competitive environment, not just provincially, but just locally, if they see the people against them are running crooked ads, after a while, uh, having a $500 penalty in every one of your honest ads because you're showing the real price and not a fake lower price becomes unbearable. Or it appears to you to be unfair. And so you do the same thing as everyone else. And you wait for the regulator to come in and, and whack one person with, a, I don't know, two or $3,000 fine. You made maybe $250,000 last year in illegal charges and prohibited charges. So those fines are very tiny comparatively. George, if someone's having an issue after they left the dealer or even beforehand, what do they do? They call Onvik. What is Onvik doing now? Well, Onvik has um, the most robust, the largest public information and complaint service in the country. Um, it's not perfect, but um, it is absolutely a tool uh, that can help you mediate your complaint and in many cases arrives at a resolution between the, the customer and the dealer. So the first thing is you need to, to have your facts in order. So have a copy of the ad. If there's anything in writing, have it available. Uh, if you have exchanges with the retailer, that makes sense because early on before things are too tense, if you're working by text or by email, you'll have stuff on record that can help uh, somebody, a third party who's looking into your complaint investigate. And in many cases, um, what the statistics show is that when OMVIC does get involved, uh, dealers actually do listen. Um, and um, they are capable of, of having um, uh, money. It's a significant amount of money, $2 million last year, returned to customers, the value of the settlements that they negotiated. OMVIC themselves are aware that there are cases where they would like to intervene and don't have the power, and they've actually recently asked to have the legislation modified so that their um, complaint handling process uh, could be, uh, lead to some more robust results if a dealer is really uh, standing their ground without, being, without it being legitimate. Well, it sounds like it's time that this, this industry did have that kind of muscle, and not just in Ontario and Quebec and Alberta sort of a little bit, but... I. It's, it's time. We're spending so much money on these acquisitions and we need more forceful enforcers, for lack of a better word. So that's that's great to hear that Avic's doing that. Yes, certainly uh, BC, Alberta, Quebec and Ontario all have a relatively significant investment in public complaints. But um, in terms of results and in terms of the scale of, of what's made available, Quebec and Ontario are, you know, invest a lot more on this. And it's important, by the way, dealers are aware of it. Uh, when we when we ask them, it's often other than you know the license that they pay for. It's the the most visible part 
of of the regulator's activity. And I think it's very important for both retailers and customers to know that there's a place people can go. I want to touch just briefly on uh, recent Quebec information that came out over the past week, and we're going to do an entire podcast on this separately, but it's the first cohesive Lebanon law, and we haven't heard those words in a long time because they're in the U.S., it's patchwork. Every state has different things. In Canada, you know, we have consumer laws, but not a lemon law. Quebec just came out with a lemon law. And again, we'll devote more time to it. Are you happy with this? Is this what you want to see? Do you believe this is the way we finally need to go? Um, APA appeared at the hearings for uh, when there were uh, government uh, hearings that were held uh, before the legislation was adopted. And we brought in uh, examples of, of cases, actual cases, a Subaru buyer who went in 26 times to correct an oil consumption problem. And the car maker still wouldn't take it back. A consumer who went in 41 times over 42 months with their vehicle for a variety of problems. The car maker wouldn't take it back. Someone else went in 19 times with a defective vehicle, the car maker said, well, we must have fixed it because you've been in 19 times. We're not repairing your car anymore. All these people had bought a defective vehicle and the car maker was not recognizing their right to have it returned. So a lemon protection is actually necessary to bring back some sanity. Most vehicles are not lemons. Very few vehicles are actual lemons, but when you get stuck with a bad one, the vendor and the manufacturer should be of a mind to take it back and make you whole. And this will make it easier. It, by the way, I don't think a lot will change in Quebec immediately because car dealers will still refuse to take the car back. You're still going to have to lawyer up. But what it will make is your court case will be simpler because if you can show that it went back three times for an uncorrected major problem or it was off the road for more than 30 days and no one provided you courtesy transportation, then you won't need a mechanic to testify on your behalf. You'll just need your calendar. Before we go, I just want to ask you a final question. Again, when a consumer walks into a dealership, it sounds like the beginning of a really bad joke. Sorry about that. Um, in Ontario, the advertised price has to be the all-in price. We're also seeing, you touched on it a little bit earlier, extended loan terms. Um, five years used to be normal, then six, seven, eight, nine. At 0% interest, okay, I can understand that you know, it's free money, so you can do that. We're seeing more and more people getting underwater as the prices of these cars keep escalating. How do we put that back to a simmer and pull it off the boil? There's people who are spending $1,000 a month on a car payment. And three years ago, the average was like 600. Are people, are they desperate or are they not getting the message? What, what does your research show you? Uh, generally speaking, uh, what we consider our needs are actually our wants. Our needs are something much less. So if you want to drop the acquisition cost so that you can drop your payment, you move into a smaller segment vehicle. And right now there are still some really terrific compact cars out there, vehicles that you can go out the door with at $30,000, nicely equipped. I don't know how long they'll be around for at that price point. There's no domestic car maker making those vehicles, but the imports are still offering them. You know, Mazda 3, Honda Civic, Toyota Corolla, uh, Subaru, either the Crosstrek or the Impreza. These are all vehicles that could give you a, a comfortable, economical experience, in some cases, even with all-wheel drive. 
uh, and they cost a lot less than the average price of a new vehicle. If you can, if you can put money down, it's definitely worth it if the alternative is paying 8% or 7%. Um, what you make on savings, if you have any after tax, is going to be much less than that for most people, unless you're in a you know pretty highly leveraged, risky business. But in that case, you don't need our advice on this podcast. So. <laughs> And I just want, I want to remind people as well, cars are built to last. They've, you know, it's never been better. Take care of the one you have, even if it means going and getting it detailed, but get it into your tech a couple times a year. Take care of it. You can make it last. And even if the shiny wears off a little bit and you're thinking, I want the excitement of a new car, don't be too tempted. As George just said, there's needs and wants. And sometimes what you have in the driveway is already a perfectly good vehicle. Just take care of it. Maintain it. And then you don't have to get into this crazy market. Not so easy, Lorraine. We've forgotten how to do it. <laughs> Honestly. Like, That's why uh, I'm trying to remind people. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Part of the reason you get rid of a vehicle is because it's a bit of an eyesore. And yet it's very hard to find a body shop that would do corrosion repairs on your vehicle, even to get rid of like something that's in one place, a hole or whatever. Um, it's not worth it in many cases. They tell you, forget about it. Just cleaning up your vehicle professionally. It's a couple of hundred bucks. Don't be cheap. Uh, you might end up liking it better if the interior looks brand new again and you've gotten rid of the clutter. I've heard a lot of people say that. It, it feels yeah. new. It helps. Yeah, it helps. And then uh, for maintenance, what I'd say is if you still have a paper owner's manual in your vehicle, go open it up in the back. Even if it's gobbledygook, uh, it might make sense to pick the time and mileage that's equivalent to your vehicle today. And set aside probably the better part of, you know, several hundred dollars up to a thousand bucks for to have the actual service that's required done as a prevention for the way forward, as opposed to just asking for an oil change and somebody to look at the tires. So there is a way to avoid um, these crazy times. I don't know if they're going to settle anytime soon, but if you already have a car, make the most of what you have. If you have to go get a new one, listen to the tips that George has told you, do your research ahead of time and stick to your mark and try not to let the emotions come into it because that's when we move from needs to wants and it happens really quickly. That's it for this edition of The Driving Podcast. A huge thanks to my guest, Georgini. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to check out previous episodes of The Driving Podcast. I'm Lorraine Sommerfeld. We'll see you next time. Thank you.